ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Nightlife Science. Joining us this evening for a look at science this week in uh, the style which only he uh, can possibly adopt is Charlie Lineweaver. Charlie, good evening. Welcome back to 2024. Good evening, encephalated earthling. Now, look, uh, now, as we know, everybody's interested in the moon these days, and that's a whole separate topic, I guess, but Japan has landed their moon lander slim on the moon. Uh, the only problem is that it landed upside down, <laughs> which yes. sounds like a problem to me, was it? Uh, well, it was and it wasn't. So uh, what's interesting is that, so Japan became the fifth nation to successfully land softly on the moon. And it was, in fact, the most precise landing ever done because on board was an image recognition software that said, oh, look at that crater and that crater. Ah, let's compare it with my memory bank. Ah, here's where I am. And based on such new image recognition software, mm. they were able to land within 55 meters of a particular spot. To put this in perspective, all other landings have been within a couple of kilometers or even a dozen kilometers. Wow. So when you have that precision, you can say, hey, I want to land exactly here. And uh, that's the kind of precision that we're used to now when, you know, SpaceX lands on a barge in the middle of the Atlantic, sure. for example. But that's based on GPS. And I guess they have all kinds of other things that are backing that up, not just image recognition software. There's no GPS on the moon. This, was, this was a robot, of course, wasn't it? This was a robot. There are yeah. no yeah. humans on board. and uh, But they did have a toy on board, <laughs> created by a toy company. It kind of rolls around. It's about the size of a tennis ball or so. And it rolls around and wags its tail. And, and it has a little <laughs> little camera in the front, kind of like you have on your, on your iPhone or something. And uh, so it was able to take pictures of the spacecraft that landed upside down. What happened was as it was coming down in this most precise landing, uh, one of the retro rockets failed. The thrusters mm -hmm. failed. And so it landed, I don't know, cattywampus. And then it fell over and it was on upside down. And so the photocells were not pointed in the east. Now, I say the east because this thing was, mission was uh, made. Mm -hmm. So it would last a, an entire day. And on the moon, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. It rises, and then two weeks later, it sets. So that in, sense, in, sense, in some sense, the lunar day is two weeks, mm -hmm. and the lunar night is two weeks. And so it was not uh, built to withstand a lunar night, but it did want to work really hard during this lunar day for two weeks. The problem was, because the photocell is not pointing in the right direction, it's thing being upside down, it had lost the first week of its two-week day. Mm -hmm. And then, but just a few days ago, uh, it the sun went far enough into the west, so it would then shine on the photocells. The um, thing came back out of hibernation, and so it worked for a, about a week. And now the shadow, uh, you can it's third quarter moon now, mm -hmm. and so the moon, the sun is setting from the position of this, this okay. uh, wonderful. Soft landed. So they got a bit of data out of it. <laughs> oh, they got a little bit, of, uh, not a lot, but but it was uh, it was the fifth nation to land softly yeah, on the moon. Yeah, yeah. Also, I mean, you may have heard of a one attempt earlier the, in January where there was a company based in Pittsburgh that vented its fluid and it's called the Peregrine, mm. and it didn't make it to the moon. But ne this month, there's another U.S. company. Uh, something of an initiative in the name, and it's trying to going to try to be the first commercial company to land to softly. Soft land on the moon. And we'll see that in the next few weeks, I think. Wow.
Wow. It's all happening, isn't it? I know. No, the moon is the moon is about to explode with uh, debris. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and colonies and human beings and, mm. and artificial intelligence that's going to kick us off the moon. <laughs> I know. I know. Now, whales, uh, I saw plenty of those on my holiday, but uh, but whales can smell in stereo. <laughs> well, that's, that was the what, is that, what does that mean? Well, you... You, you do know that there are, I think, I would be safe in guessing that there are no one-eyed cricket players. No. And the reason for that is because you need two eyes. You need stereo vision to judge how quickly something is changing or moving towards you, the directionality. You also know that you have two ears. Mm-hmm. And when you hear something, you look in the direction of where the sound came from. That's because you have two ears. If you only had one ear, it would be much harder to tell where sound comes from. So the fact of having two of receivers gives you stereo vision mm-hmm. or stereo hearing. And the idea of this Scottish marine biologist was maybe the idea of having two nostrils sufficiently far apart would give you stereo smelling. That's the idea. Now, this is, this is an excellent science project for a high school student. What you do is you sit down in a room and you attach two pipes, one going in the right, into your right nostril, the other going to your left nostril, and you separate the ends of these pipes and you hermetically seal them and then you sniff. And then you see you're sniffing things from two very different regions of a room mm. and maybe you can tell where the smell is coming from. I do oh, not know. Okay. The, but yeah. that's the idea. That yeah. Just like you have two ears, two nostrils. Now, the background to this is that if you're a cetologist, a study, person who studies whales, you know that um, there are tooth whales and there are baleen whales. Mm. And tooth whales are sperm whales and orcas. They have teeth. That's why they're called tooth whales. They only have one blowhole in the top. In other words, they're two nostrils have merged during evolution. Mm -hmm. But baleen whales have two separate nostrils, but some of them are very far, well, far apart, and others are closer together. So this sweet, this uh, Scottish uh, marine biologist decided, I know, if if these baleen whales with nostrils that are very wide, they might be able to have stereo smelling, and they would be better able to navigate the directionality of a smell. Now, the smell comes in when the, these, uh, these baleen whales eat zooplankton. Zooplankton mm-hmm. eat phytoplankton. Phytoplankton, when they are being eaten, give off DMS, dimethyl sulfide. So it's, a, it's an odor that the baleen whales should be able to locate, and it would be very important for them to locate it. And so he was able, using drones, to follow wide-nostrilled baleen whales and close-nostrilled baleen whales, and he found that the ones that had the widest ones were able to navigate more quickly towards the stinky DMS that was given off by the phytoplankton that was being eaten by the zooplankton, which was what the baleen whales want to eat. Mm. That's a little bit complicated, but it's it's an interesting exercise in... You know, olfaction, yeah, which I'm, yeah. I'm very interested in because dogs still can outperform any computer oh, in, yeah. in determining what smelled. They're I mean, you, you don't have ro- these robotic dogs that run all over the place now. They do not have good olfaction, so they can't do like Sherlock Holmes says, okay, give them the, give them the handkerchief and follow the smell. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. All right. Now, how, how about this? Ants, how did ants persuade lions to eat buffalo? Yeah. Isn't this a weird thing? This is mm-hmm. cool. So... So, I mean, nature is just lovely. This is something called a trophic cascade. It's a complicated word for, you know, one thing changes another, which changes another, which changes another. Well, 
In Africa, I don't know if you've been to Africa, but in Kenya, near Mount Kenya, they have acacia trees. And these acacia trees are inhabited by acacia ants who live in the thorns. And they love together. They've grown up together. They've evolved together. But then there's an invader called a big-headed ant. And in some regions, the big-headed ant has pushed out the acacia ant. When that happens, the elephants push over the trees. I guess because the acacia ants protect the acacia tree by giving the elephants a hard time. And so the elephants say, oh, I can push on these trees because only the big-headed ants are here. So in the, so this biologist found regions where this invasive ant pushed out the acacia ant. The elephants pushed over the trees. When the trees are pushed over, the lions don't have any shade. And so the lions just loved to sit in the shade of an acacia tree, but they didn't have any shade. And so they changed their feeding habits for reasons I do not know from eating zebra to eating water buffalo. And this this uh, biologist from the University of Wyoming, a Kenyan American biologist, cool. uh, put all this data together over a 20-year period of looking at these ants and looking at the elephants and figuring out what fraction of the kills were water buffalo and what fraction were... Mm-hmm. Zebras, and he was able to conclude that yes, these uh, acacia ants were protecting the acacia trees mm-hmm. from the elephants, which then gave shade to the lions, which then mm-hmm. made the lions eat the zebras more than the more than the buffalo. It's the web so, of life. It's the web of life. But it, it, there's another sidelight to this. In my life, a few times I've seen. Uh, they, I don't know, these nature shows, they show a pack of lions, maybe two, three, four, attacking this really strong buffalo, mm. and then. The buffalo looks like it's going to die, but then the herd of buffalo, two or three or four dozen buffalo, they kind of get closer and closer to the lions, and then the lions get intimidated, and then they just run off. I can't figure out why isn't it, why isn't it the case that these buffalo know that, hey, I can scare. When we stick together, we can scare off the lions, and so let's go save our compatriot, but sometimes they don't, and I can't figure out why that's not the case, so that's a Ooh. question to be answered by further study. <laughs> exactly. It um, turns out that starfish, by the way, uh, although they have things, well, they're in the shape of a star, which you might think are legs or whatever, they're not. Starfish are, are just a head. They're all head. Yeah, and you could ask the question, how do you know that? Well, we we now have the ability to look at things called, um, well, this is called bilateria. There's a fancy word for every critter that is bilaterally symmetric. We were talking about two eyes and two ears. That's bilateral symmetry. And if you look at a fly, for example, it has two eyes, two ears, two wings. That's a bilateral symmetry. And, um, well, the, we know by looking at the larvae of starfish that they are bilaterally symmetric. But then they grow and grow and grow, and they turn into something that's radially symmetric. It's got five arms, and it looks like a circle or something. And the question is, how in the world did that come about? Well, these scientists, we scientists are so good now. What what they do is look at the baby, the embryos, and look at what type of genes are being expressed. And they can tell the head genes from the torso genes from the tail genes. And so it's the anterior to posterior gradient of gene expression that is common in all of these bilateria, in wasps and human beings. That's what your vertebra column is all about. Mm-hmm. Or, and so what they looked at, the gene expression in these echinoderms, uh, starfish, and they found that the only genes that were being expressed in the starfish were the head genes. And all of the other genes that are supposed 
supposed to, to, to induce a trunk formation or a tail formation, they were gone. Mm-hmm. And so that's the basis on which they say starfish are all head. head. A <laughs> <laughs> couple of other things before you go. The strange virus-like <clears throat> replicators have been discovered in the human gut. Yeah, this is something that, you know, I'm interested in the origin of life. And Mm -hmm. one thesis for the origin of life is that we had a viral origin. These were Mm -hmm. pieces of RNA that were just moving around and were able to self-replicate. And they could ribozymes, their own enzymes. But this this, uh, this Nobel Prize guy from Stanford named Andrew Fire and his group, they published something just this past week. And they call these new things that they found uh, virus-like replicators or obelisks. And uh, they're able to do this because they were able to improve the technology that looks at the sequence of RNA, pieces of RNA in a sample of the human gut or the human mouth. And they found in a very large fraction of cases, you and I probably have a matter of fact right now, we don't even know it. These are virus-like replicators. They called obelisks. They're not viruses. And they're not even viroids. Viruses have, well, it's, viruses have a, this, a protein code around them, and they have their own polymerase. That's to enable their, their RNA to replicate. But viroids uh, don't have that. And these, these uh, obelisks are even more, they're just a weird type. You might call them viroid-like. Instead of virus-like, they're viroid-like. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is that they're really small. They're sequences of RNA, and they do all kinds of weird things, and they were just discovered. No one knows anything about them, what the function is. They did find some that were living inside of some bacteria that were partially uh, pathogenic, and so this is a whole new world, and it's exciting for astrobiologists because this small, these small life forms, the smallest life forms, they're so small that we don't even call them life forms. That's where I think discoveries will be made about the origin of mm, life wow. and about uh, also for medicine because you can figure out maybe they are important for keeping your mouth uh, and your microbiome mm. healthy. We don't know, but they've just been discovered. Charlie Lineweaver is with us. Just finally, Charlie, why don't woodpeckers get concussion? Because after all, they're banging their head against the tree trunk all the time. Right. Well, over the past maybe 100 years, scientists have said, oh, I know why they don't get a concussion, because they looked inside of the the woodpecker's uh, brain case, and they saw some spongy stuff that looked like shock absorbers. (laughs) But they said, oh, and that's why it doesn't get a concussion. The problem with that is that it's a stupid idea. Why is it a stupid idea? Because if you put a shock absorber into a hammer, that undoes the function of the hammer. The function of a woodpecker's head is to puck, 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 dig a hole <laughs> into into the wood. And if you put a shock absorber in there, that makes the blow of the pit, bet, the beak less intense. Mm. And so it would undo the whole purpose of being a woodpecker. And so what they did, they they made very high, um, I guess, high resolution images of and draw pictures on the little spots on the woodpecker as it pecked. And it was able to see the acceleration of different parts of the brain. And in fact, there that uh, what used to be thought of as a shock absorber doesn't do that at all, and that the brain does have this tremendous shock on it. But the difference between a human brain, a human brain is gigantic compared to a woodpecker's brain, and that helps a lot to prevent concussions. And it's also the shape of the brain. So it's the the uh, shock absorber theory of woodpecker's adaptation is just completely wrong. And uh, we now know that shock absorber, you don't need that shock absorber. As a matter of fact, it would be counterproductive for a woodpecker to have a shock absorber. <laughs> and you can now prove it with videos. 
There you go. See, the things we learn. Charlie, always great to talk. <laughs> Look forward to our chats throughout the year. Thank you. <laughs> it's terrible, Charlie. Bye. <laughs> I was trying to do Woody Woodpecker there. <laughs> See you later. Okay, bye bye. I'm not a celebrity. <laughs> bye, Charlie. Bye bye. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.